Hello, everybody, and welcome. I am clinical psychologist Dr. Steve Thayer, and this is Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and mental health. My co host, as usual, is Dr. Reed Robison. Reed is a psychiatrist and a seasoned psychedelic researcher and clinician. In today's episode, Reed and I are going to discuss a few topics that are of special interest to many of you psychedelics, psychosis, and the abuse potential of ketamine. We hope you enjoy our conversation. We do work so hard on these conversations. Please enjoy. All right, Reed, we're here again to talk about psychedelics and mental health. Here we go. Yeah. So I thought today we could discuss um, the, uh, it's a little bit of a controversial subject in the research and and clinical community, but psychedelics and psychosis. So whether we're talking schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, for example, um, that it seems to be the recommendation when like you talk to a, a clinician that's doing this kind of work. Yeah, we can use psychedelics, ketamine included for a lot of different conditions, but not if you're psychotic or mm-hmm. not if you have any psychosis in your family. We don't even want to touch that because, uh, you know, we don't want to launch you into a psychotic episode. We don't want to gift you your first psychotic break because we're doing psychedelics. Hmm. And I imagine some of that concern comes from the 50s and 60s, um, drummed up by the the fear, you know, uh, that put put on the community by the by the drug war or whatever, whatever claims you want to make that, if you take these drugs, they're going to make you crazy. Um, but is there? Should we be concerned? Should we be less concerned? What do you think? Well, the the funny thing is, is back when LSD was sent out to psychiatrists across North America, there were two uses of it. Mm-hmm. One was as a model of psychosis, right, and the psychotomimetic, right? Yeah, and the other one was as a therapy aid, mm-hmm. right? And so. The thing that we that may not be politically correct in the psychedelic world these days to talk about is is yes, these medicines do make you psychotic for a brief moment in time. Yeah. We just don't call it psychosis, but um, if you look at psychosis as a change of perception, loss of touch with reality, then yeah they're they're bringing about a brief um, psychotic like state for a moment that can be extremely therapeutic in some individuals uh, it's harder to come back to solid ground if you're at risk for that or have a history of that right and so there there has been caution advised for decades and i think there's a good reason for that even though it's probably too strict over the years and we're starting to understand better how to use these in those situations yeah Probably too strict. I, I think it makes sense, especially as we're trying to, as as the new psychedelic renaissance started, to be really conservative with the kind of research yeah. that we were doing, right? Because we don't want to um, be really, really aggressive, apply psychedelic medicine to all these different conditions and have some, some um, index cases or some really high-profile cases of psychosis or exacerbating a psychotic know disease yeah we don't want you to become the most dangerous man in america all of a sudden according to the president or something like that um but it's interesting over the years to watch how psychedelic studies have gone from uh if you have any kind of relative with the history of psychosis you're excluded from the study 
to loosening those up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But it's still understandably an exclusion in many studies, especially a personal history of psychosis. Mm-hmm. But at least clinically, with the growing body of research and clinical experience, we're getting more comfortable with it, with uh, psychosis, with bipolar spectrum disorders, with dissociative states. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because we're learning more, right? And we say, we use the term psychedelics, and it applies to so many different compounds, different plants, different chemicals. Um, it's, with the more that we learn, we'll, we're probably just going to discover that there are some medicines that work better or worse for certain of those conditions, whether that's bipolar spectrum or dissociation or psychosis. Some that are more stimulating, some that are more, you know, more of a depressant. It's, it's uh, I mean, it's a testament to why research needs to be done. Yeah. I remember when I first went out to the jungle to work with ayahuasca therapeutically, I arrived with this big medical bag. I had a defibrillator. I had <laughs> all the meds you could imagine, including antipsychotics. I'm like, hey, I'm here. I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> and the uh, the shamans were like, uh-uh, you're not going to need that stuff. Thank you for bringing it. But um, they viewed it differently in that, like, psychosis is more of a psycho-spiritual emergency. It's more of a movement of energy. Mm. And that there's value in letting that energy run its course. And they told me about a story from uh, the year prior where a lady mid-ayahuasca ceremony had had a pretty intense reaction and a prolonged psychotic reaction afterwards Mm -hmm. um, to the point where they had to get her out of the retreat setting because she was distraught and loud Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um, agitated. So they rented a home uh, across the jungle on the river somewhere. They asked a, a doc from an Ibogaine clinic to come and help consult now and then but they just took turns with uh i think four retreat staff members um holding space two yeah. at a time while this ran its course and it went on for a week or two hmm. and uh i was impressed to hear that they held space that long without intervening with any of our western approaches that that might knock psychosis out of the sky but um the more i heard about this and was intrigued by it, the more I dug into it and saw that there is some literature out there to support uh, the fact that if you let uh, psychosis or mania run its course in a safe way, within reason, Mm -hmm. then there may even be less recurrence of those types of episodes later. Yeah. Yeah. Through, not away. You know, it's... it's, Yeah. And I I like the the qualifiers that you made, you know, uh, we want to do that safely and within reason because there might be some, well, many times (laughs) when you wouldn't want to allow that to continue. But um, it makes me think of a few examples that we, that we've even had here in our, uh, in our treatment with ketamine, people, um, you know, with dissociative identity disorder who Mm. you might think, no, you'd never want to give them ketamine or, or something that would occasion a non-ordinary state of consciousness, which is, you know, a, a fancy name for, I guess, a psychotic episode right? <laughs> yeah. or psychosis arose by any other name. Non-ordinary. Yeah. Yeah. But um, for at least two people who fit that description, it's been completely game changing for them. And I think, 
you know, we talk a lot about preparation. We talk a lot about holding, holding space, the right set, the right setting, and integration afterwards. And I believe that makes all the difference for whether or not you're going to have successful mm-hmm. treatment of a condition that is so unstable like that um, or whether you're going to make them worse. Yeah, I had a, a client who was, while seeing me, uh, also undergoing uh, kind of guided work with psilocybin. Mm-hmm. And after, as he did some of these sessions and with increasing doses, after one of them at a certain uh, pretty high dose, having a, a pretty strong mystical experience during the session afterwards, what he described sounded like a hypomanic episode, mm-hmm. but it was a very kind of uh, blissful and seems like therapeutic experience for him where he was um, he went on a, a bit of a walkabout or a personal exploration, mm-hmm. uh, searching again for his soul and his purpose and came back to his family with a renewed kind of vigor and lease on life and uh, looks back on it even though it was uncharacteristic of him to go like drive up and down the the coast or go on a cross-country road trip by himself uh, it was you know extremely valuable experience for him personally in his journey mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah you know the more and the more I think about it kind of circling back to what we were talking about a second ago with the need for more research so that we can get more surgical about the way we Mm -hmm. apply these medicines. Um, You know, one ayahuasca ceremony might be fine for a person who's in a depressive episode of their bipolar swing, but maybe four in a row would be a bad idea because of the sleep deprivation and maybe the, you know, the dehydration and lack of food because that could trigger a manic episode. Yeah. So the way we, the methods, the protocols are, uh, probably need to be researched and parsed out as much as the medicines themselves. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of the uh, entropic brain theory mm. or the unified theory of mental illness, you could call it, of where uh, we are all on this spectrum somewhere of entropy or disorder, chaos, mm-hmm. if you will, all the way up to the other extreme of over-control, order, um, and even mental health conditions, you can plot on this, like mm-hmm. schizophrenia on the entropy end of the spectrum, OCD, over-control, anorexia on the other end of the spectrum. And psychedelics do loosen those chains that bind us sometimes in our over-anxious, over-controlling, like we, we won't let ourselves relax or stop worrying Um and what's interesting is they can also help restore balance from the other end of the spectrum, the loss of control where you might not be able to get out of bed or you might not be able to stop a binge eating pattern, um, but they can still be that radical change in perspective to get you back to a reset middle place and yeah. try and maintain that balance. But if you're on a, an end of a spectrum with that's near psychosis, and then you take a a medicine that loosens that even further, then uh, that is a potentially scary place to be unless you have the very careful structure, support, and follow-up in place. Right. That makes me think of something I heard from somebody once who has bipolar disorder, and they, uh, 
you know, they, they participated in ketamine assisted psychotherapy and they said that being on ketamine helped them. I'm just thinking of like that sort of the, the manic thoughts, the disorganized thinking, the difficulty keeping a train of thought, it helped them actually bring that closer in. And so I'm just kind of riffing on your comment about the entropic brain and that spectrum of over control to completely falling apart depending on where you are in that spectrum it's either bringing you closer to the center from from either side and so what you said just sparked that in my mind it's a, a case example of that actually happening for somebody who has bipolar disorder that maybe in the past we would have been more concerned about mm-hmm. giving ketamine to yeah and it's also worth pointing out that we have had instances of people with uh, either a a known bipolar disorder or a previously unknown and a bipolar spectrum condition where ketamine unearthed some kind of manic type symptoms. And and we did have to spend a little extra effort to work with the individual and their family to... uh, bring them back to a, a solid, stable place, uh, a grounded kind of presence in their life. Yeah, I mean, a, a testament to the importance of informed and educated caregivers, like to mm-hmm. the extent that we can to make sure that a person getting psychedelic medicine um, has a support system to help hold space for them, whether they're going to experience, you know, this uh, these destabilizing psychotic symptoms or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You want to chat about ketamine and abuse potential? Yeah. Something that it. comes up a lot. Yeah. Get a lot of questions from, from clients, too, you know, because, I mean, they uh, they tell their parents that they're going to do this ketamine thing, and, mm-hmm. and mom says, wait a second, isn't that the horse tranquilizer, or isn't that the, isn't that, isn't that the party drug? Mm-hmm. And the answer is yes. You know, they are both of those things, used recreationally and for large animals the unlikely story of ketamine going from club to clinic yeah yeah so is there an abuse potential i think you know the easy answer is yeah there is but why i I think that's something maybe we could explore like what makes ketamine why would somebody abuse ketamine i guess well ketamine is many different things at different doses in different sets and setting Mm -hmm. so in the club drug world, people are often using low dose to, you know, re- release their inhibitions a bit, to make things more interesting and loose. Uh, but there's a very real risk of doing too much, especially in that setting where they don't know how many milligrams they're, they don't know what they're consuming. Or if it's cut with something else. I mean, you get straight yeah. ketamine, it could have other stuff in it. So you hear stories of people being like leveled, flattened, K-holed, mm-hmm. uh, at a nightclub, which, you know, is not a safe uh, or desirable experience, uh, I would say. Um, But then there's the whole psychonaut uh, crowd who might be exploring ketamine to go to the depths of their psyches Mm -hmm. or um, to have intense, deep psychedelic experiences um, in different settings, but still as a drug of abuse. and then there's the use in anesthesia, mm-hmm. the most legitimate FDA-approved uses of ketamine. Ketamine's been around for decades, probably given millions of times in right. surgeries, ERs, uh, even 
combat zones, yeah. back, backpack medics. So I'm thinking about like the difference between the the rave ketamine user and the psychonaut is a difference of intention. It's a difference of setting, maybe a difference of dose, but I mean probably similar doses. Maybe it's the psychonauts using a little bit higher dose because they're trying to go deeper. Yeah. Um, but is it addictive? Right? Is it addictive in the same way that cocaine would be addictive or opiates would be addictive? I've seen people get hooked on it with frequent multiple times a day use. Yeah. And uh, so I think there is that risk. It's relatively rare consider- considering how many people receive it therapeutically, receive it in hospital settings. Mm-hmm. Um, because it has such a short half-life, it's there, it's gone. Uh, and the best I can tell, it seems like those who are at risk for seeking ketamine frequently in a kind of illegal way or setting are doing it more as an escape yeah. from reality or maybe escape from the pain. That's what I'm thinking. You know, we often quote Gabor Mate uh, with reference to addiction. You know, when, when someone has an addiction, don't ask why the addiction, ask why the pain. Why are they trying to escape the pain? But there are some drugs that I think are more, they have a, a, a deeper chemical hook than others. Yeah. And even if you're not in a ton of pain, it, you still could develop an unhealthy relationship with those drugs, like nicotine or opiates. Opiates, yeah. Yeah, where they're inherently desirable and at very high risk of becoming habit-forming. Right. Like, you know, I remember I've had very few opiates in my lifetime but i remember when i was a teenager in high school i had my wisdom teeth out Mm -hmm. and i've never had well i guess i've had anesthesia once in my lifetime since then but i didn't have anesthesia for that it was local anesthetic i could feel and hear the pliers taking my wisdom teeth out Mm -hmm. and then they sent me home with a small with a prescription for tylenol 3 which has coating in it Um, and I remember my mom drove me home from the dentist uh, who took my wisdom teeth out she's like do you want to fill this prescription I'm like nah I'm good (laughs) but then when the local anesthetic wear off I remember sitting on the couch and it just hit me this pain in my mouth and tears came I wasn't like weeping yeah even though there's nothing wrong with weeping (laughs) (laughs) Um, weeping is encouraged here Um, I, I said, actually, I'll, I'll take some of that. And I used it as prescribed. I went to my part-time job. I went to school, used it sparingly. But then at the end of that like weak prescription of it, I remember thinking, wow, that actually feels nice when mm-hmm. you take it. And I was like, and it, it was just a memorable moment of uh, these things have an inherent abuse potential because they feel blissful. Right. Yeah, for many. And I think, you know, ketamine isn't always that. It, and you could say that about some of the other psychedelics, too. We often say they're anti-addictive mm-hmm. because the the experience you get is not 100% predictable. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, you're in a cosmic washing machine or you're in, you're in the bowels of, of, you know, Satan's dungeons. It's, it's not always yeah. a beautiful trip. Um, but in as much as it's an escape, ketamine could be certainly be addictive in that way. And sometimes it is euphoric. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you're right, though, that ketamine inherently 
has less of an abuse potential than these opiate medicines because um, because of that level of desirability when you take it and also uh, probably because of some of those other things where it, it is a non-ordinary state or altered state that can be wild, weird, strange. Mm-hmm. There might even be nausea with it, which mm-hmm. can be aversive or anti-addictive in and of itself. I've had so many people say, oh, that ketamine was so interesting but i felt like i was going to throw up i don't know if i ever want to do that again (laughs) right right yeah yeah so back to our prototypical client who comes in and says you know is this addictive is is there a danger to this in the clinic setting we prep you you know we educate you um the set and setting are healthy the likelihood that you're going to develop an unhealthy relationship with ketamine because you started it in a clinic really low unlike Opiates, right? A yeah. lot of people get their first experience with opiates in a hospital or something like that, and and start their addiction there. Especially if they're prescribed lots of it by a mm-hmm. uh, you know a non an uncareful doctor. But so, yeah, those are good points. It's it's of utmost importance to have the right policies, procedures, checks and balances, or bumpers in place when embarking on a course of ketamine treatment mm-hmm. from the intake with screening, medical, psychiatric screening, history of substance abuse, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, other risk factors that might contribute to the risk of abuse or dependence. Um, And then having the checks and balances in place of a good support system, a good uh, treatment team in place, including a you know, frequent touch points with a therapist and and an open dialogue we need to have with their family member or caregiver involved in their treatment. Right. Yeah. Especially if we're going to be sending ketamine home with people, oh, which, yeah. you know, in a compounded uh, trochee or something like that. I've heard it pronounced troche. I'm going to go with trochee. It's probably the wrong way, but troche just sounds... Or like lozenge. Long. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Gummy. Um Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know we're not going to send them home with very much, and they're gonna, we're going to have, as you said, continued contact with their providers. Yeah. So yeah, like I said, the likelihood that they're going to develop an unhealthy relationship with the substance because they get it at a clinic, if the clinic's doing its job right, pretty low. Mm-hmm. It might be worth uh, backing up to the the three buckets of how we use ketamine here mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. clinic uh, that. Uh, that you really helped uh, articulate for us or together in our CAP training course where we give it in a psychedelic way, like usually by IM injection, eye shades, headphones, in the ketamine room with support. Yeah, Uh, going after an inward journey. Yeah, and then there's psycholytic, meaning you take uh, a low dose of ketamine by nasal spray or sublingual lozenge, trochee, troche. Uh, <laughs> before your therapy session, we keep it here for you, the, the ketamine. And the third way being psychiatric, where we might give ketamine as a medicine or spravato as a medicine for severe treatment-resistant depression or suicidality to help pull someone out of a crisis situation in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And, and in that situation... Once someone's had a successful course of treatment in clinic, even though, of course, we want therapy going on alongside it all the time, but, 
but looking at it just as a medicine, sometimes we'll send it home for maintenance because it's hard to access ketamine when it's not covered by your insurance plan. Right. And you might need a booster dose every month uh, during a severe depressive episode to maintain a certain level of uh, remission from your depression. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so in that situation, that's where we get into this careful Um, evaluation of the safety and the risk potential and make sure we talk to the caregiver and have an open relationship and dialogue so someone can be present not only for safety but help make sure the use is appropriate and as prescribed right right another question probably we can explore real quick is uh, is ketamine safe for long-term use physiologically safe psychologically safe and maybe what do we mean by long-term use you know, typically the research protocol for ketamine for mental health um, has been six ketamine treatments with accompanying psychotherapy with maybe monthly boosters thereafter. It kind of depends. I'm sure there are a variety of ways to do this. Um, so what are the what are the potential because ketamine is a pretty safe medicine. What are the potential physiological dangers for repeated ketamine use? Well, if you look at uh, what we know about ketamine from the street use literature, mm-hmm. there are some risks to things like the bladder. Interstitial cystitis, for example, is a, a risk or a, a condition that's been described and associated with uh, street ketamine use. But um, if you look at the ketamine for depression literature, the ketamine for anesthesia literature, or even the recent Spravato studies that brought S-ketamine to market, um, there isn't that same risk. Mm -hmm. Um, In the Spravato data, they did, mind you, they only did a year of a follow-up study. A year's a long time, but it's not a very long time in the grand scheme of things. But over the short-term studies and the long-term year-long studies with S-ketamine, There was no interstitial cystitis observed across hundreds, if not a couple thousand individuals. There were, however, some bladder symptoms, Mm. like some polyuria or like frequent urination. And in a very small percentage and in a mild and transient way, but it it does suggest that, you know, beyond even the street uh, type of ketamine and whatever else may be in it, you know, there's probably some bladder effects, but but the best we can tell, no known risks in that specific category if used appropriately in clinic. Right. You know. Yeah. Proper medical, proper um, medical screening and all that. But otherwise, uh, that's just one example to point out um, what we know from street use, from hospital use, from clinic use, and even related drugs like Spravato. Right. But if you look at the side effects of ketamine that come up during use you have your dissociation your uh, dizziness sedation um, even loss of consciousness in a small percentage and um, those things have their own risks in the moment but also if they're used too frequently there's a theoretical risk of of uh losing touch with reality or unearthing a psychotic or even manic episode right right so uh, all the more important for us to screen properly and create safe containers and yeah you know do our do our due diligence with preparation and debriefing and integration 
Yeah, because I can tell you of the thousands of individuals who have come through our clinics to get ketamine-assisted psychotherapy treatment, um, there are very, very few who have ever even entered into a problematic uh, relationship with ketamine. And when they have, we've had that open dialogue with them and their their loved one or caregiver to have a follow-up. And we have frequent prescriber appointments. Uh, we have the therapy going on. So there's that uh, ability to quickly intervene, lay it all out there for exploration together and say, okay, this uh, has entered into a relationship that's not you know, moving you in a positive direction. We're going to um, change the way we're using this or pause it and work on these other things for a time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Really important discussion. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us today. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Novamind, a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research. You can learn more about Novamind's mission to increase access to legal, safe, and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. This will help us get into the ears and faces of more people and help us put wind in the sails of the psychedelic medicine renaissance. Thanks for listening. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So, if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.